Oh shit, I forgot to record on my side. You don't have to. Oh, we're going live. That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, you don't have to record your, your side of this. It's not, well, it will be a podcast, but I'm, but YouTube will nicely record the whole thing for me. So really the big question is whether our audio levels are kind of appropriate. And of course, we're just waiting for some human being to acknowledge our existence. It's possible that A.V. Scott and Flower just did. Um, so did you see the eclipse last night? Uh, I actually did not. That was the problem. We had really bad weather here, so I, I missed it. It, it. This is the big one. It's the blood moon, too, and I, I missed it. I did yeah. not. That is the sort of cruel fate, the cruel irony of having a total lunar eclipse on in the wintertime yeah, that it's... huge swaths of the of North America anyway didn't get a chance to see it at all I, I can't believe it we had like I live in like the worst part of North America to see eclipse anything in the sky in the wintertime it's just rainy and cloudy but for some crazy reason things just opened up perfectly and it was awesome now the solar eclipse are the ones i always feel really bad about missing because you get that i mean there is nothing quite like the way it is when you're actually in that that total dark you know that that there's just the way everything seems to set around the edges and, and just seems the right kind of light but torn down did you see the solar eclipse the one that i think the last one that i had here was it last year or the year before? yeah two years the the one that was like two years ago yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. i yeah. got to see that one and uh i had a pretty decent view of it from uh from my front porch actually so it was nice so um hey everybody <laughs> oh right there's people watching us have a conversation um so uh i'm joined uh, for the second time by my good friend uh, and and futurist uh isaac Isaac, how's it going? Pretty good. Glad to be on facial. Uh, you are obviously just growing in leaps and bounds. And I think that last time that we talked, you have a much larger operation and organization now. The quality on your videos is just going up and up. And, and you know, as a person who's in the business, I see and I know where all of the video clips come from and there's a ton of stuff that's now happening in your episodes that you guys are making from scratch so how many people have you got working with you now uh there are almost a hundred people in the production group that sort of, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, a lot of them they make maybe one clip a month or they work on the editing of the scripts or they moderate things but it's a huge group of people and i'm, I'm you know they come they go they they you know sometimes they're busy sometimes they're not but it's, yeah. it's just I, I, you know, they, they make things so much better, you know, and uh, it's so nice to get to work with them too. Cause they help you're working on these things. So it's nice to get feedback as you're going along and that, you know, keeps you motivated and moving. So it's a, it's a tough thing where you have people <clears throat> who volunteer to help out because they're really enjoying the content that you're creating and to try and put all of that enthusiasm and skill into a, a final product. And so the fact that you say you've got 100 people, right? Like on our team, there's Chad, uh, all hail Chad, who's my editor and um, and he sort of handles a lot of the, the back-end production. There's my wife who um, does a lot of the camera work and me, and that's the team. And, and so, uh, you know, we're kind of in this time where where we're able to make the kind of content that I think people yeah, like no us as children or as young people, we would have loved to have seen the kind of stuff that you're that you're creating. And yet it's not the kind of thing that like a big the cosmos would come and you know, the people behind Cosmos one of the big production companies come and, and try to fund. I mean, do you think this is the future? I like to think that you're, I mean, there are too many times, you know, when we're doing the pop side stuff where it's like a five minute discussion of stuff that we've had so much of, you know, the short news articles uh, that get to see, be, see by millions, you know, that was always kind of the, the level that need to be at. Um, but now when we're doing longer episodes, and I was glad to see a lot of folks have adopted the longer in depth material, we've seen that there's no way to ever exhaust that. You're never going to have too many people doing this kind of material in depth. Um, 
on all subjects or on any field, history, you know, philosophy, any of those things. And this ability to kind of crowdsource and start small. You know, one person part-time can turn out quality videos now with a relatively small investment of time and energy and resources. Um, obviously, the more you put into it, the better the individual quality is. But, um, you know, the, the difference between the early work when it was strictly just me and now is big, but not so big. Right. That it's, it's you know, not something you don't need. A, you know, we have 100 volunteers who spend a couple hours a week for the most part on it. But, um, you would need a production team like 100 to have done something like Cosmos back in the day with Sagan. I, I'm not even sure the credit role there was, but I'm sure that was mostly yeah. full-time folks. And, you know, we match that level of quality these days, but, you know, 30 years later, uh, with much better technology. And, you know, that's still good. Those are still good to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody can do those now for any topic. But and, if you look uh, at Cosmos, for example, uh, what were there, 12 episodes, 45 minutes long, yeah. right? That's That's one quarter of a year for you, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> 12 episodes, 45 minutes long, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, but you and you've been dependably putting out an episode a week since the dawn of time. I think we started in like I started calling them seasons after a while to kind of keep some kind of sanity on what the order was. And there was uh, early season two. We switched over doing a weekly format and uh, um, we haven't missed one since. And uh, the, the trick for that, of course, is to prepare the moment in that. Yes. We like the scripts for like March today. And, uh, you know, then we just have to do the video for that. So. Prior planning uh, prevents poor performance. Yeah, and uh, it helps out a lot to be able to, because, you know, when, you, when you're working on these things by yourself, it's so easy to let the timelines kind of slip on you. When you start doing it in a more organized fashion, there's other people waiting on the material, and that helps for me to make sure I'm getting the stuff done. So, you know, so we have the episode written and recorded usually about seven weeks before it airs, and that gives folks time to pre scrap as if they've got an interest and. uh you know, they're all volunteers, so sometimes they will have an episode where there's a lot of new graphics, and other times not so much any because nothing interests them, per se. So. And, of course, then we rely on stock footage a lot, too. Lots of stock footage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you feel, like, I find that as I'm, I'm creating content, one of the things as well, one of the advantages that I think we get over over traditional media is that we get to have a conversation with the viewers. I mean, they're literally chatting about what we're talking about right now. And don't worry, I see that a bunch of you have a bunch of questions and we will totally get into it. But but this is this is my time right now. Um, I've got a bunch of questions I want to ask Isaac first. Um, but, but there is this conversation and you can feel the memes and you can feel the the pieces of knowledge that that you go back and forth that 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 there is this shared understanding of the space pardon the pun that you're working in as you're moving forward and it allows you to have an an evolving conversation about and, and about the the topics that you're investigating that maybe wouldn't be wouldn't have been appropriate back in the very beginning if you were just getting started but now you've you've brought your audience along to a place where you can have all these short codes and 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 uh jokes. you know what i mean to yeah, be an in jokes and jokes. and all of that you develop a community and it's it's that's another one of the cool things i know obviously if you're an actor getting millions of fan letters or something like that it's it's got to be overwhelming and it can get overwhelming the correspondence we get at all sizes but uh you get to know people um yeah. and that's you know and not just for feedback too it, it keeps you going you get to you develop relationships with folks uh just in the regular world audience and um it is ideal you know i think as we see this this kind of niche broaden out just because there will be people coming out and producing more and more of this stuff i think that we're going to to see a secondary kind of thing where it is a lot more like um audiences get to a certain size and some shows get bigger but for the most part where you can actually talk to your audience individually and then people probably tend to migrate to smaller channels uh over time because uh they can still actually have a conversation yeah never too yeah. small so that you can actually start the community but uh you know a, a good healthy medium and we get to see how this this new it's like being a uh, silent film maybe is what we're going to be but we're going to be replaced by uh normal <laughs> movies but uh right it's like being there at the dawn of radio or the dawn of a film yeah and this new niche this is like wikipedia 20 years ago which yeah is stuff, you know it's awesome it's it's funny too because like i you know i always imagine i think a lot of us when we get into this we imagine that we're going to or people imagine that they're going to get picked up that that in fact yes fox or paramount or 
Discovery no. Channel is going to come along and choose you, right? And and have you make a TV show for them on the TVs. But I actually feel I really feel like we've found our destination that mm -hmm. that this is the best place that we can be. And I don't know. You know, I've I've thought about this before people have always said like if you were going if you got offered to do uh something for Discovery Channel or for BBC or whatever, I don't know whether I would want to do that compared to the community that we're building, the conversation I get to have, and the freedom, right? No, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I either say, well, well, if you get picked up by Netflix or Discovery and say, I've never inquired on that. No yeah. One, no one's ever inquired towards me. Uh, if they asked, I'd certainly consider it. And, yeah. you know, it's it would certainly be an honor. But at the same time, it's not really something I'm, I'm you know, keep my fingers crossed that that's going to happen. Yeah. I like what I do right now. Yeah, and uh, this is the most fun I've had in my entire life. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, it's, this is just so much fun. Yeah, things so, change. Who knows? Five years down the road, two years down the road, tomorrow. You know, you, you things come by, things evolve. Um, and uh, but I'd be quite happy doing this for many years to come. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think that's it. And I, I, I think we're completely off the radar, mm -hmm. and I haven't seen a lot of like YouTube type stuff mm -hmm. that's successfully made the transition over to big television or whatever. So, um, I so can certainly jump me because I mean, yeah. you know, I was in grad school when university came out. Cause I know that's when I started, it actually might've been before that, but I started reading it way back in grad school and that I'd be like 2002 or one. And, uh, you know, that's, that was a different, different time for the medium at the time. So, and that was still, that was so awesome. You could actually see good visual, like, you know, magazine quality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's evolved a lot since then. All right. Thanks, everybody, for letting me uh, chat with some of the uh, inside baseball here with, uh, with Isaac. This is the kind of stuff I've just, I just want to know, like, how, where they're at along that. Uh, hit us with any questions. A couple of people saw, put in the little question mark icon if you want me to notice easier. Um, but, but all questions coming. Someone asked a little ways back about the phosphate problem. Are you familiar with this? Uh, shortage of phosphates for life coming into existence? Maybe, or? I don't know. Let me see. You have to specify. Oh, that's right. Larry Beckham is asking, how are we gonna solve the phosphate problem in the long term? Can you be- A shortage of phosphates? Yeah, I don't know. Can you be more specific? Larry? <laughs> um, that's probably the only one I'm really qualified to address yeah. at all anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. um... All right. So Greg Ewing is, is saying, so I'm starting to work on my own YouTube channel, kind of like SFIA. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you want to know more? Any advice on starting out? Yay team of one here, at least in the start. Any advice for someone who is starting down this path? Um, you know, make things you enjoy making uh, rather than trying to make stuff that the audience likes. It's be yourself. Uh, obviously, you know, you put on a bit of a more professional persona while you're walking, but, um, you know, do stuff that you enjoy making and uh, the audience will follow. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. At least you're going to be enjoying it when you do it. Uh, in terms of the technical specifics, uh, you know, ping me afterwards. I'm always glad to help out yeah. new channels. Yeah, me too. And, I mean, I think my advice is just to show up every day, like, and Isaac is the demonstrator that I, he's better at this than I am, which is just follow your schedule, just keep showing up, just keep creating content. And I, I love that, right? Follow your curiosity. I found that my content has gotten better as I'm just following the topics that I'm most interested in than necessarily doing the stuff that, that I think people want to know about. Although I guess I'll put a caveat that we sometimes we run polls to see what kind of topics we're doing. And of course, those tend to do well with views too, so I can't complain. But uh, sometimes those are actually some of the funnest ones to end up doing too, just because it's kind of out of left field and you know the audience is going to like it because they picked it. So you, you feel safe just kind of exploring it. So, but focus, especially early on, stick to stuff that you feel really comfortable doing, you know? <laughs> All right, here's a good one. Uh, TRKM Strwiggy as do you think the discovery of aliens will disprove the theory of a god? Can't imagine why they'd be related, to be honest. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, if we discover alien life on another planet, and it's, the question is, is it complex life or is it simple life? And I think, I, well, I'm, it, I, I'm guessing most folks know that I'm, I'm not really 
optimistic about finding intelligent life in this uh, in this galaxy, at least technological. You know, with maybe the universe is full of cavemen. Um, but I don't really see how I would have any real bearing on theological questions. Those mostly stand separately. Yeah, I think people are going to use it as more evidence of whatever they believe in, and other people are going to use it as less evidence in what they believe in. And some people don't, as we see, don't require evidence to believe mm -hmm. in things. Um, Capital H is saying, I've heard Isaac mentioned the bathwater epoch in the past. I've looked at this topic for no avail. Love to hear your elevator pitch. What is the bathwater? I'm epoch? trying to remember what the actual water was called. You remember the it was a paper came out a few years back about the possibility of life about 15 million years in, where the temperature was about. Um, oh sure, yeah, okay, yeah. I started calling that the bathwater epoch, and I epoch, and I thought some other people were calling that too, but I think I might have accidentally coined right. it. Um, <laughs> so this is actually this is a paper that was done by Avi Loeb and team, and Avi of course has has come under quite a lot of scrutiny recently as being the big Oumuamua um uh booster uh but also you know a really renowned astrophysicist someone who was helping the event horizon telescope do their calculations for what they're going to see when they take that image of the supermassive black hole 2019 maybe scott and flower um spring um, and so this is the idea that in the early universe seven to 15 million years after every, the entire universe was the Before room temperature was yeah. was habitable the entire universe was a habitable zone did he have a name for that do you call him using or because i feel I like i ought to be using his tool like the habitable epoch or the oh i don't yeah yeah just just the cause of microwave background radiation was yeah. room temperature yeah. And I mean, they really would not have been uh, going to somebody was saying about the phosphate thing, assuming they were talking about uh, in terms of, you know, available phosphorus. Um, yeah, there wouldn't have been much to work with back then, but there was at least a little bit and stuff was a lot denser. So I wouldn't rule out really simplistic life having potentially evolved in, but are not very good odds. But it's actually one of the things we're talking about in next week's episode of Panspermia, just because I thought it would take fun to take a look at it then. You're doing Panspermia so. next. Next week, yeah. This week's one is actually, uh, we're, we're teasing our Australian cousins for their upcoming Independence Day by uh, doing one on space prison colonies. <laughs> space prison colonies? Sometimes it's fun just to do one that's not too, uh, well, I mean, we're, we're covering in a serious fashion. You always have the possibility when you're doing colonization in space that once it gets going, you have a lot of more rogue elements that are basically going to leave, right? And there's certainly plenty of history of us doing that, uh, you know, uh, exiles uh, and, and prisoners, things like that, do colonization with. So I thought we'd take a serious look at it and then kind of look at what crime and punishment might look like in the future, right. too. Um, Mostly these Australian countries, though. Uh, Dan Bogetz is asking, how long would it reasonably take for us to rebuild from a coronal mass ejection like the Carrington event? How ready are we for a severe coronal mass ejection? It depends on how severe we're talking about. I mean, Carrington <laughs> yeah. event severe, one that uh, lights the lights the telegraph towers on fire. Yeah, um, I mean the one that that was the one in the 1800s, was it not? That was given the ghost signals. That no, the, so so right. It was in the 1800s that uh, Carrington saw a flare on the sun, and mm -hmm. then there was a coronal mass ejection that was so severe, a flare that was so severe that that uh, electricity was pushed yeah, through, through the, the telegraph towers caught on fire. People saw auroras around the whole Earth down to the equator. And it was a, a very significant event. And of course, the problem is that all of our computers are all connected together and all of our electricity grids. And so you stick too much electricity uh, down, you start to fry chunks of the... Yeah. I'd be very worried about the condition. I'm not sure how it is in Canada, but the U.S. power grid is so old. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think it would actually handle uh, any, any sort of high level CME or EMP for that matter very well. Um, I think some of the cities we look at say because most of them have newer wiring, but um, uh, I mean, it's not like it's going to destroy civilization. It's not at that level, but that would that could be enough to tip somebody into recession, for instance. On the other hand, you might get out of it by rebuilding the power grid afterwards, which would be expensive, but it's something I really wish people would consider funding sometime soon. You can make one that's fairly immune to EMP and CME type stuff. Yeah. 
Um, Arjun is asking, what do you think will be the qualities of the first sport created off planet, either in space or on another world? Have you done future sports? It's an episode we keep thinking about doing is space sports and uh, space sports. And uh, I always want to call it space ports. And uh, we did an episode on space ports. Um, you and space sports. I was thinking that you, you you got on the moon, for instance, something we were talking about with the moon. You have to exercise when you're on some place like Moon or Mars. You have to. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Yep. Um, so you kind of expect almost every base to get its own, you know, own team of whatever the game was. And, uh, you know, it changes. I'm not sure you'd actually end up using a lot of the same rules. Something like basketball, for instance, you know, you, you really can't play that properly in low gravity. It's, you, know, you have to rearrange the field. Same for something like baseball. Um, you know, some of those asteroids, you'd actually be over the escape velocity. Um, but you would have to have those, and I think you have leagues that would do that. But you could have some that were very specific, like, um, you know, launching yourself outside of a rotating habitat from its own spin, trying to catch onto a navel after drifting for a couple hours, or just, you know, dropping right out of, like, off the side of an orbital ring into the ocean. You know, you hit terminal velocity instead of reentry speed and just dive down there. And, you know, that's. There would be some unique new sports, I think, that we would get out of that, not just, you know, uh, the usual portrayal in, in science fiction, which is let's take a modern sport and uh, put tinfoil on all the players. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> but I think you would see you would see modifications of the existing sports course, that we have yeah. here on Earth. But then you would see, like, for example, on Titan, you could strap on a pair of wings and fly around. Yeah. What? Same for Venus. If you if you were very confident, someone could come get you if you fell too far. <laughs> Where would you, like, if you were like high up in the atmosphere, you could do that? Yeah, like one of the buoyant points. So you know, they talk about doing the buoyant colonies on Venus up around yeah. there. It's one atm pressure. Um, you could fly around on that and um, just don't fall too much. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think you might want to power pack on something like that, but. You know, again, you've got that sulfuric acid in the clouds, too. But, yeah. you know, that you do have things that can resist sulfuric acid in terms of goggles and suits. So that shouldn't be too big a deal. Uh, A.V. Scott and Flower, uh, we saw your question. Uh, is, do you think the U.S. will establish a Kármán line for nuclear propulsion away from Earth? Do you think space agencies and governments will use nuclear propulsion in our lifetime? So do you think, do you think we will see nuclear propulsion in the near future? <sighs> I hope so, because it's one of those things, I mean, I would love for us to get fusion tomorrow or really cheap solar power or power satellites, but until somebody's willing to really invest in something like that, the easiest choice really is fission. And um, I, I certainly do not favor using that too much in launch craft uh, or anything in low orbit, uh, although I think it's safe enough for low orbit and limited usage. But, you know, in terms of, you know, planetary stuff or asteroid money, especially if we can find some good fissile material sources out there to, to supplement that, you know, you should, in theory, be able to create an entire nuclear economy that doesn't have to come near or that people really don't want to. But right. to me, that seems like compromising towards stupidity. You know, we, we have a fear of nuclear that's not unjustified at all, but it's really overblown. And um, I understand everyone wants to keep the, you know, DOST uh, treaty, don't have nukes in space either. But you can't not weaponize space because every spaceship's a weapon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. That's a great point. The spaceship itself is a weapon. I mean, the International Space Station, if they wanted, they could drop it down on any location on Earth and cause a lot of damage. It would be yeah. a very, very expensive way to cause damage. Yes, uh, I think what do we want about a hundred billion on that one. It seems like you know you might want to just use a nuke in a case like that. But yeah. you know, um, I mean, of course, it's not really ideal for reentry though. But you can make something that can handle that reentry real easy. I mean, one of the reasons why we have so much that is we try to use it for breaking. Someone decides they want to take an atomic rocket and fly it up as a kinetic weapon up to you know twenty kilometers a second, ramming into the planet. You know, that's I mean, it's not like it's going to end right. the world, but that's a that's a powerful weapon, you know. So do you think, like, I mean, we've got, like, the um, the Outer Space Treaty, and really every second clause in the Outer Space Treaty is, like, no nukes in space. Seriously, no nukes in space. Treaties have to be updated from time to time, and, I, yeah. and it was built with that in mind. You know, the folks who wrote that weren't stupid. They've been to the treaty messes of the 16, 17, 1800s already. They know that you have to leave yourself room, and so it's, it's a placeholder until we knew what was going on. You know, there was no real need to have nuclear in space until relatively recently. If someone had been looking at a base, they, you know, 
they say the US or Russia or China had gotten themselves ready to go do a moon base. They could have gotten permission for an atomic reactor there by just agreeing to let the other guys have a pot on board next to, you know, as a piece of the base themselves. Um, it's diplomacy. You know, you yeah. just, uh, if, when, when the time comes, it won't be a big holdup. But the exception that is privatization of space, a lot harder for somebody like SpaceX to say, well, we'd like to put a nuclear reactor in space. They have a bit more of a threshold in terms of trying to actually get that permission so right um cody's lab has joined us he says unfortunately Hi, i don't think there are good deposits of uranium in space mars maybe uh, are there deposits mm. of uranium that are accessible i think there's some with crete materials the uh was it potassium oh i can't remember the rest of it is um the crete materials that we sometimes find in, in amongst some of the craters apparently have uranium near them a lot of times but uh, certainly there'd be a good amount of thorium if we ever get thorium cycles going, but right. uh, there should be a decent amount of uranium, but not a lot of it. Uh, Cody's right about that. It, I mean, but again, there's tons of it in, on Earth, um, and uh, there's a decent amount of it in space just to set up a refining system for it. But I think you would almost have to start using burrito reactors because you know I think you want to be using something like plutonium ideally, or you know one of the more decently fissile ones and uh brutal reactors also have a strangely bad reputation i don't know why <laughs> right well i mean <laughs> all nuclear reactors have a bad reputation and i think you're exactly right like if you want to get away from the bad reputation just take it to space and i i really feel like that is the that's the strategy for a lot of this stuff right like there's a lot of really bad polluting things that we do and it would space is gigantic and it's empty and there's nobody out yeah. there. So who cares? Like, let's just, it's a up. radiation. It's the thing is it's not empty. Everything that's in it that isn't empty is radioactive wasteland. Yeah. So yeah. 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 It is like all radioactive. Waste. In fact, if you took a few, a fission drive and fired it in space, you would be making a little part that was less radioactive. Yeah. It's the worst. Um, we picture things like Mad Max, like, well, here's the Earth. It was a radiation scorched cradled hellhole. And it's like, well, that actually describes every place other than a hole. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there is just this constant rain of cosmic galactic uh, radiation coming down and the the constant solar wind. Yeah, it's all radioactive. So so don't worry about it. You can't make it worse. You can't make space worse. It's already well, just terrible. See, uh, it's not going to work because I'm sure someone will think of a way to, <laughs> think a way to make it worse. <laughs> Let's break goo this thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I never like to underestimate our ingenuity, uh, including our ways of hoarding ourselves. So. Right. To make things worse. <laughs> We're very talented at that. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Let's see. We got a super chat here. Thank you for the super chat, David S. But I just like, I hope people don't use the super chat as a way to get their questions to the top of the list because I want to try and answer as many people's questions as possible. So, um, but uh, do you think that launch loops or a mini version and a skyhook are feasible in the 10 year time range or still far off? So, what do you uh, think? Launch loops. How big a fan are you of launch loops? You know, until SpaceX started getting really good with reusable um, rockets, I had pretty much taken as given that things like the, the Lockstrom launch loop or the Staltram was the only realistic way to go for kind of heavy lifting. Um, ten years, no, not because it's really all that technologically difficult. It's that there's so much prototyping you have to do along. I mean, you were talking about building something thousands of kilometers long. You don't build the highway system that quickly, even though you could, just because you have got all that developmental prototyping. You'd start off with something maybe 10 kilometers long that did like a 30G launch of, of dead payloads, you know, nothing, you know, acceleration sensitive. Um, uh, I'm very optimistic about launch loops or Staltran type things, but I'm less optimistic than I used to be about skyhooks, rotavators, because those, there is that little bit of extra difficulty there um and i'm worried that that's not really going to be panning out with reusable rockets coming across as much more feasible skyhooks though still strike me as amazingly good combinations especially you can do the electrodynamic tethering to get them regenerating momentum mm -hmm. um but i think we could you know i like the i like the idea of hybrid systems where you're taking advantage of two platforms you know and uh if you've got a skyhook that's grabbing a hypersonic plane or a launch loop that's short or that can go up to one i like that option 
I'd say feasible, but not, you know, we could get one started whenever people want to. It's just seems like I'm doing a power grid. It takes a long time. <laughs> yeah. You keep your fingers crossed. Somebody comes up with something better, you know? Um, our Joan is asking, uh, what do you think about the feasibility of the Dragonfly project that Fraser was talking about? So did you look into the Dragonfly project when it when it came out, when the original paper came out? It's, it's really familiar sounding. But it's a, well, it's it's originally, it's a Robert Forward okay, that's, I, I idea. Seeing, I guess, okay. And it was a laser-powered probe sent right. to another star, and then it was adapted for the Breakthrough Starshot mission. But the mm -hmm. gist of it is that you use here's the dirty secret is we don't have time to watch each other's videos just so yeah. you know um <laughs> well you right? catch that's you why catch. that's why we're less familiar with each other's videos than probably you are um and also you don't want to you don't want to have another person's the other person's videos well that actually uh, it's one of those, your brain. those things that up. Uh, you know sometimes people send you a, a book and say could you review this say i don't want to because if i do i'm going to like a year from now without even thinking about you some of your yeah, material I'm steal your ideas and I don't yeah. want to do that where it's kind of going in the back of my head and, you know, I'll forget to even credit you. You kind of like to keep a minimum on that. You watch a lot of the other channels, you have an idea what they do, but you also, you don't want to watch them too yeah. consistently. It's like when I watch one of your videos or one of John's, first thing I want to do is do a video on that. And I was like, oh, I should do one on fast radio ball signals. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's covered. Go, go ahead and do a topic. <laughs> Um, your audio is cutting in and out, and I don't know whether it's like some piece of technology on your end or whether it's just that you're going back and forth away from Probably your microphone. Probably back a lot like this. So yeah, I have really it, bad mic control. How is it right now? It well, it it feels like there's some kind of technology as well that's cutting. So I don't know. Apology, apologize. Tap the microphone that you think you're using. Yeah, that's the one. Okay. Yeah. It'd be embarrassing was the webcam one. Um, hmm. I might even see it light up at the second on my. Uh... Can you hear me at the moment? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Oh, oh actually, that was yours that was lighting up on. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just in general, laser portion. Um, and uh, it got me thinking about the Dragon, uh, Dragon's Egg novel by Robert Ford, but I always think of it for the Neutron Star Civilization that lives there, uh, which is coming up in an episode in March. I just got done writing. I love using laser propulsion, especially for starships. Uh, the, the question is how you slow them down at the other end. And so the, so the, the trick with the dragon, with the dragonfly is it uses a mag sail as proposed by Robert Zubrin. So it deploys a 35,000 meter long uh, loop that then interacts with the interstellar medium to slow the spacecraft down. So it, pretty much it launches coasts for 80 years deploys the mag sail and then slows down um to the point now, that what i like to use that in combination with this is a forward probe that was doing a flyby you know the vanguard that slowed down and then was full of nice little automated machinery that would build something like a laser to slow you down too. yeah um but I, I really do tend to feel like you know laser propulsion is is going to beat out things like fusion drives or stuff like that. It's always nice to have those options to get them, but we can do lasers. We can do power. We got an entire sun. You know? um, and, uh, it's, it's got its advantages. Um, Benjamin Alexander really, really, really wants to know what you think about crop circles. I thought they totally debunked those. Yeah. This day. Um, yeah. I in mean, fact, the people who did crop circles, I thought they claimed that on you. Yeah. Showed people how they did them. And... The conspiracy now says that they uh, they are lying. Oh yeah, well. okay. Um, you know, I know there was um, the one that they had in the 1980s was a crop circle, but uh, um, I guess we played some joke. The U.S. force played some joke on the British SAS, and they paid them back by doing an alien abduction was staged, and they came out and admitted to doing that. And folks are now saying that that was in fact uh, they are lying about that. There was actually a secret scroll operation. I have no idea. It's uh, crop circles, to the best of my knowledge, are not. Um, are not considered a, a likely thing these days, but yeah, um, who knows? I can't think of any. The biggest thing is I can't think of any reason why aliens would do that. Yeah, it's so easy for me to imagine why they come visit us. That's that's the easy part. You know why? Why wouldn't you come visit us? Yeah, uh, that's one of the reasons why I don't think they exist is because I, I can't imagine them not coming by to visit us if they did. <gasps> but um, I don't really see why they they do that to make cops of course. It yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> So, so all, I mean, all of that, right? Like, like yeah. the fact that people can push, you know, there's, they, that it takes aliens to push over corn mm -hmm. does not sound 
like a real leap of dramatic technology for a race that can that can cross the vast gulfs between stars and yeah. and you know they can do all that and then they are able i, the I best believe they, they could show... make crop circles if they wanted to yeah. I, I, I do fully believe <laughs> yeah yeah they That's could burn bad. holes into the planet with their mega lasers yeah. and they that did. would that would be evidence where they could just land and go we're here as opposed and... to knocking over corn you don't always have to have evidence to prove something is plausible, plausible, <laughs> but um, it's a, uh, you have to have, when you, when you don't have good evidence for something, it has to be logically consistent. You have to poke at it and say, well, if they're doing this, why are they doing it? And if that's the motivation for doing it, why aren't they? Like they would say, uh, if you're gathering DNA from people, you're abducting them to gather DNA. Okay. Why didn't you just steal a bag full of pennies from the bank instead? Those things are covered in DNA. Why don't you steal a mailbox? You know, yeah. <laughs> why? Why? Or you know, raid a blood bank? Why? Why? Yeah. Why would you abduct people to get their DNA? You know. <laughs> so, so I've got a question for you. What is a near technology? Something that's going to happen in probably the next ten to twenty years? You figure that will make the biggest difference on humanity? Uh, two good options. Uh, one would be really better batteries, ones that can charge and recharge and, and hopefully have a density on par with chemicals. If we could get that, that would be a huge impact. The other one, software-wise, reactive software that, you know, like teaching, for instance, something that could, uh, you know, you got a computer desk with a student and the student's reading or watching a video on something and the computer says, this person's showing biometric signs that they are bored. I'm going to switch to a different piece of material or they showed an interest in this bit here. And so it shifts over. So they're watching a video on the, the Mongols invading and the, the kids ignoring the main speaker, but they keep focusing on that one dude over there with the foy hat. So suddenly it shifts and starts having that guy talk about stuff instead. That kind of reactive software, you know, because we don't think about it, but learning technologies are the most potent aspect of, of technological boosts in general. So things that could actually allow us to do that one-on-one -on -one teaching aspect where, you, you know, it's not just one person talking to someone, it's that you can react to them, that you can tailor everything that's going on to them. So reactive software like that would be the best one, I think, especially for so many, because you have to, so many gadgets these days, we all just have to constantly learn. So, so it's um, like one of those, those technologies that will be used in almost anything yeah. to make that technology, um, useful and more helpful seamless fast forwarding of uh, well let's say one of our videos somebody's heard me talk about something before and we have to repeat it for the main audience they start getting a little bit bored like they've heard that it just skips forward over past that without having to say another word you yeah. know and um then they can tell oh it likes this you know they like this bit and the other thing of course is that it's it's not just that it can do that it's that it it, it knows how to do that so that means that it can be used that for all sorts of stuff like marketing. It can instantly yes. say, this is the toothbrush that you want, you know, and I know you want a toothbrush right now. Yeah. <laughs> I've been able to tell because you've been like picking at your teeth. You yeah. Know? So, um, I mean, to the battery issue, do you think that this is possible? Like, do you think that that there will be a dramatic improvement in batteries to the point that it can do some of the things that we need? Or do you think there is just like the laws of physics require a certain level of energy density and then you're, and then that's that. There was, um, I have to be careful what I say. There was a venture capital firm that I was talking to that was starting to put some research funds into batteries and they feel like they can actually boost that, the area of improvement very significantly. Um, I'll leave it vague on that. I don't, I don't know if that, you know, we're talking about like magic batteries out of tomorrow or anything like that though. But they thought it was a very good area to be investing at that time. And uh, I tend to agree. It's certainly a good one to gamble on. There are limits, though. I don't think you're going to get batteries that can store energy more compact than, say, you know, hydrogen or gasoline. Yeah. Um, or antimatter. I, I mean, it would be nice if they have more antimatter. I don't think Google puts black hole. Um, I don't think we're going to get those. It would be nice to have something like that. But if we get something that was just, you know, on par with, like, chemical propellants, you know, um, fats or carbohydrate levels of energy densities, and that you could charge or discharge very quickly because that's the other big one. You know, you go take your electric car out and say, well, okay, it's 200 miles. And now I have to sit at this gas station for the next hour or two to recharge. And that's the biggest problem we're having with this stuff. Um, there are ways around that, though. You know, wireless beaming of, of power. Um, instead of having electric cars that charge up, you have ones that are receiving power through a rectangle on the highway. Um, although I, I have 
concerns that people would be okay with microwaves being beamed down the highway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got, yeah. I mean, I, I finally made the jump and, and got an electric car. Uh, while all of our other YouTube friends are getting Teslas, I got a used Leaf. It's like five years old. Uh, but uh, it's great. I love it. Uh, it doesn't go very far. It only goes about 100 kilometers. So, But I've never gone below. I think the most I went down was like 30%. And, uh, but I use it day in, day out and I bring it home and I plug it into the house and it costs me like $2 to refill the, so I think we're there. You're good for, um, and I mean, I live out in the middle of nowhere where you have to drive like five, 10 minutes to get to the store, but uh, so they won't be too popular here where everyone wants to drive an SUV because of the weather anyway. Um, but if you are like a two car household an electric car and you got somebody who commutes on a daily basis, an electric car is perfect. If you live near a nuclear power plant. Um, you know, I, uh, if you live to a core power plant, I'm not really seeing the event. Right, of course. I, you know, here it's all no, <laughs> it's all hydroelectric where I am from, right? Because it just rains and it rains and it rains, and we just use yeah. that for and, our cars. And um, we have a power plant right down the road for me, the Cloud Factory. Um, you know, and they never turn on the second reactor because it was never popular with people. They cannibalized for spare parts for years, and you know, we have much cheaper power right here. Yeah, uh, and we actually, and it would say, as long as in the danger, it's like, well, we've actually got the worst safety record of any power plant, nuclear power plant in the United States, and I've, I've never seen a three-headed fish yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, uh, Stephen Thomas asks, have you ever considered making shorter or more focused content for the ADHD afflicted among us? I love your content. It's far from boring, but it takes me three hours to watch an episode. I don't know. I made me three-hour episodes. The like was like. Well, it's possible and, that the, the material is so uh, dense that you it takes you three hours to like go back and keep going, keep going oh, yeah. on. Yeah. Um, I mean, every time I discuss, we, we occasionally do shorter bonus episodes, especially now that we're so locked into the schedule where it's, you know, months out. Sometimes the wind takes you onto a current event. And we did like one for uh, asthma of uh, 2019. Yeah, that was I thought. Wonderful. And we literally did that because uh, one of the editors who helps me on that was, uh, you know, he was in the hospital covering from my surgery. I'm bored, and it's like right forty years. Are you doing anything? He's like, I'm also bored. It's like forty years. Let's write an episode. Skip <laughs> off. And uh, so it is nice to be able to just do stuff spontaneously, which the normal schedule doesn't permit. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of really good science channels that do like five to ten, fifteen yeah. minute videos. Um, I do my niche, and I don't mind doing the occasional one other than that, but. I know what I, I tend to be good at and I don't mind playing with other ideas, but you know, I mean, if you want a 10, 15 minute video on, on astronomy, you know, uh, PBS space time, they do amazing yeah. stuff. There's so many channels to do really good short videos. Um, I don't see reason to really move to that format myself. Yeah. I, I mean, mine are in the 10 to 15 minute range. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I could go down to five minutes. I mean, it's, for me and people are like, oh, it just, you know, why do you never get to the point? And partly is because I want to, I want to tell a bit of a story before I get to what I think is the interesting news. I want to bring the people up to speed with where, what, where we are, what is the state of the technology? And I want to, and then push forward and, and surprise them with, with new things. And that's not going to be for everybody, right? So you're exactly right. Some people are going to want something that's shorter. Uh, SciShow Space, their mm -hmm. videos are like three to five minutes. They're great. Mm -hmm. So oh, One minute physics. They, they, they real fast. One minute. <laughs> and I think most of them do run over that. But, yeah. And those are, those are good, solid videos. And, yeah. you know, say, well, what audience are they for? And say, well, if they're for the general audience, you know, people just want to load up something real quick. That's fine. If they want more details. They can go to one of our channels where we go into more detail. Yeah. If not, then, then, you know, they get, they want, they're satisfied. Some are curious about more and they look us up. Yep. And it's just, you know, it's a preference. And that, you always think about those guys who do radio shows for three hours every yeah. day. What Twitch streamers, <laughs> right? Like, look, the, the new thing is that people are on Twitch and they're streaming. And I know, you know, a lot of it is like video games, but people will watch, people on Twitch for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. So, so there's like kind of a little everything for everybody. And that's, I mean, that's the whole key. The biggest problem when we were growing up, we had the three channels, right? And, or, and PBS or, you know, BBC episodes might come in, whatever it is. We had the big three and that was it. And every show had to be based on how many people was watching and how much it costs to produce it. Uh, we didn't get a lot of sci-fi not because it was terribly unpopular, but because they had to pay the actors and the special effects. When they get just the same size audience from doing something, they only had to pay the actors. Yeah. Now we actually start seeing uh, we're finally getting good science fiction shows again. Um, 
all over the place. And yeah. that's because of, of the widening network to be, you don't have to make an hour long or a half hour long show anymore. It doesn't have to be 26 episodes a season. They can just put out this number of episodes. That's, that's, that's the story we want to tell. This episode is 50 minutes long. That one last week was 35. This one would be an hour, 10 minutes. Yeah. That flexibility. There's no more padding. No more. Yeah. And, and we don't have to the, break for commercials. Apart from thanking our patrons, yeah. and uh, and we're always very grateful to the patrons. Um, and uh, oh, actually, it's where I steal a lot of my production team from too. <laughs> I always feel guilty about <laughs> the that. Terrible irony, yeah. Um, <laughs> like, well, oh, you 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 donate money to the cause, and let me steal your free time now too. <laughs> yeah. Um, Greg GW asks if uh, if you were the head of an advanced alien species looking down at Earth, would you choose to intervene and uplift us? Why or why not? Uplift us to whale was the question. Um, uplift us to join the Galactic Federation. I mean, you got technological uplifting, uh, biological uplifting, neurological uplifting. Technological is just give more technology. Um, I've never seen a problem with technological uplifting because you know when you get around to it, we all say, "Well, if this advanced culture does this," um, every time a scientist creates something that most people do not understand, we technologically uplift our culture by doing that. Um, it's the assumption that it's coming pat around with, you know, some kind of exterior influence. Um, and uh, so, yeah, if I was standing down as right now, I'd give us technology because, I mean, we say things like, oh, I, I'm very worried about what these guys are doing to their environment or the way they treat each other when they're worried about where they're going to get their next oil or their next meal. I say, if only I had advanced technology that would solve these problems, yeah. <laughs> I don't dare give it to them, though. Let's let them outgrow it on their own. Right, and right. The, the Prime Directive is pretty... It makes a basic amount of sense, but... Yeah, to... but I think you know, it's... I mean, I think the, the gist of it is, like, our default is to mess things up mm -hmm. for our own selfish purposes. So to avoid that, let's make a rule that you can't mess with other people until they have achieved a certain level of, of capability. Now, in the original series, it was more of a, we don't involve ourselves with them unless uh, it really is demonstrably for their own good, like an asteroid's coming towards their, their world. Uh, I think it wasn't until the next generation of that they really started enforcing it. And that's, that's where it became problematic. You're saying, we don't know what the consequence will be, so we must do nothing at all. We can't play God. It's like, you have to play God, just play decent neighbor. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's a plague in Ireland, I, I, I don't feel like I'm interfering with their civilization by sending them some vaccines. Uh, you know, um, and of course, the thing with this, I don't think a lot of civilizations are wrecked by new technology, though. They were wrecked by an external conquering force that was using that technology to basically push in on them yeah uh, so don't be a jerk would seem to be like the prime directive <laughs> is that the prime directive don't be a jerk <laughs> that seems like the more practical one and um you know you're talking about thousands of years how do you keep someone from landing and giving somebody technology over thousands of years they evolve into a technological civilization and and why do you need to either i mean would we really have been hoarding people that badly in ancient egypt if we'd given them refrigerators and uh penicillin that yeah that really and, have, and, yeah. and and uh oral hygiene yeah right like um like that's yeah. like that alone you could go to any time in the history of humanity and go hey check it out if you brush your teeth you don't have all that pain in your face mm -hmm. and i mean that's you know you can think of quite a few rulers historically who actually went off the deep end from easily curable stuff that you know when you dig up their bodies and find out what's going on I think some of the Egyptian kings were probably a little bit more screwed up, though, from the massive inbreeding. But, uh, you know, you still have a lot of these folks that, uh, you know, so easy to make their civilization a lot more comfortable for them. Yeah. And uh, you say, well, we don't want to tamper with their culture. I said, we don't have to tamper with their culture. We just give them some useful yeah. stuff. Don't be a jerk. Of course, the problem is once you're there, they're going to say things like, well, what's it like in the place that you're from? You say, well, we got this wonderful thing called democracy. I'm very fond of Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we have this thing with like freedom of speech and so on. Yeah, um, you mean the king is not allowed to kill you if you disagree with him? Yeah, no, yeah. Not. <laughs> um, I mean, right. uh, yes, we are strange folks. Av <laughs> uh, Scott and Flower is asking you your opinion of positron dynamics and their antimatter propulsion experiments. Are you familiar with this at all? I'm not. Um, I mean, I'm familiar with the basic concept of using antimatter for uh, for a space drive, and I mean, we don't really have a good source for positrons, though, do we? Um, yeah, so unfortunately, the the reason I was kind of avoiding the question is because neither of us really know anything about this, yeah. about them. <laughs> so, 
Apologies. That happens sometimes. Antimatter <laughs> is the most efficient form of energy, the most energy-dense storage system you can possibly have. The only problem is that it is explosive when it touches anything. I don't really see a good way to, I mean, the way to talk about CO inside magnetic fields and say, well, what happened? You know, you're basically pushing on it constantly, keep it moving. Let's say I put that into a bullet, an anti-metal bullet. Wow, that'd be a big bang with a magnetic containment field in it. Typical bullet under those 10,000 Gs of acceleration coming out that barrel. <laughs> I'm not sure you can make a magnetic field that's going to be not to yeah. that and slam you in just one little bit. Now it's just about to. You know, you drop a canister of the stuff on the deck and it goes boom. Your ship goes to accelerate and you go boom. That yeah. is anti-metal. Beat if you can make it, right? If you could do some kind of cheap transmutation. Yeah, I mean, but... antimatter is not a form of energy. It is just a, it's a battery, right? It's a way of, you know, you create antimatter using a particle accelerator at an enormous cost. And what you, the benefit you get is you get, a very dense energy source that you then have to contain in a magnetic field, and then you're able to use that to try and, you know, I mean, if you can get it stable and you can make it that better than ten million to one ratio of, of energy. I mean, there are occasions where you might be willing to spend ten million times as much energy, like so you can slow down a spaceship at the end of its tiny little pod. But uh, by and large, we have to get way better at making the stuff and figuring out how to actually contain it reasonably safely for it has any use even as a weapon uh, a weapon has to be fairly stable too you yeah know? yeah um oh there was a question here about uh using dyson spheres so uh mm -hmm. uh apology let me see if i can find it here okay links links off says i'm developing a game with dyson swarms in it should i strive for realism which looks dull or should i try to express the feeling of scale even though it will be grossly far from real so should they make a realistic Dyson sphere? A realistic Dyson sphere looks like a hazy light bulb. <laughs> um, realism, when you're doing game design, you have to make sacrifices for realism. We were joking in the one that uh, we had set up so you're looking from the commander's perspective when you're controlling your fleets and that all the ships look really close together, not because they are, but because you're seeing it from the commander's perspective and he's having it all changed around to look closer so he can actually control it too. Um, right. But I mean, a Dyson Swarm, you know, it's, it's, you can't visualize it in its entirety as anything other than blah. It's only when you zoom in close that would, and then it's just going to look like a big yeah. collection of localized space habitats that still really fall apart. You're not going to have them that close together. The individual space stations, that would be the interesting part of that. One of the things that's, that's really interesting is that we have already started to build a Dyson Sphere, mm -hmm. right? When you think about our spacecraft like Juno, or um, the Solar Dynamic Observatory, or the upcoming, uh, you know, it's James like a Webb. Dyson <laughs> right? They are they are orbiting the sun at roughly the Earth's orbit. I guess not Juno, mm -hmm. but they're orbiting the sun at roughly the Earth's orbit. They are gathering power from the sun and they're putting it to work. Mm -hmm. When you get around, to, and this is this always gets people out. They say, "Oh, the Dyson thing. You can never build something that big." I said, "We're not going to build it that big. This is like colonizing a continent, not yeah. not making a big building. You are adding one piece at a time, as as need and occasion and desire demand. And you just collect. You know, it's like asking why the people who landed on Plymouth Rock didn't build the uh, you know the the Mount Ninety or something like that. You build it as you need and as as you expand." Yeah, but it's kind of an inevitable thing because uh, why wouldn't you if you if you if you're growing? That's that's always a trick there. Of course, you can never be sure you're going to do this, but if your population is growing, you're going to end up doing it eventually. Yeah. So we have already begun. the The Dyson sphere is under construction now. So and it, it's going to keep getting bigger. And yeah. There's never going to be a discrete moment where we say, "Oh well." I mean, maybe when you're within like ten percent of you know you're using ten percent of the sun's energy, you might say, "Well, now we're really a Dyson swarm." But no, you're just going to keep adding bits and pieces. And someday someone's going to notice that we actually have more cross-section given over to uh, to power collectors than, than Jupiter and Saturn combined have or something like that. But, yeah. You know, it's never going to be a discrete moment. You're just going to keep building as you want to. Unless someone tries to regulate it so everything doesn't slam into each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um uh, Eric2000, how often are live streams like this organized? Uh, I do them every Monday. So, 
Last week I did it solo. Previous week I had John Michael Godier. Um, next week I've got Paul Matt Sutter. The week after that, uh, Dean Regis is coming on, and then I've got a bunch of other guests lined up. Sometimes I do them solo, and sometimes I have a special guest. We're about five minutes away from the time. Um, what? So you said that you've got pens, panspermia is coming up as next, next week? Yeah, yeah. This week it's going to be the space prison colonies one, and then we're going to look at uh, panspermia in terms of the foamy paradox and try to separate out the the proper panspermia theories from from the ones that are more iffy because it gets a bad reputation it's panspermia strong... gets a bad reputation or panspermia gets a bad reputation uh i mean there's been a lot of fringe stuff associated to it and it's not a terribly strong theory either but it is a respectable one we're going to look at you know that as an option so and then kind of talk about how you know the uh director kind of efforts you might get out of that like could life have come if we had life on Mars, might it have come from earth in the first place that kind of thing uh, which arguably is already the case with badly sterilized space probes. So I don't worry about that too much. Yeah. Did they ever find out if that was actually if that happened or not? They sterilized them properly. The 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 rover was they were landing. Um, which which rovers? Various uh, spacecraft have been sterilized to different things. But no, there are there are definitely microbes on various rovers that have gone to Mars. So no, at this point, we actually just covered this in, in astronomy cast. So there's the idea of planetary protection and there's no spacecraft that has been sent to what's called a type five or class five restriction, which is where you bring samples back home to earth. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there hasn't even been, I think the class four, which is that you have a spacecraft that has, that is going to be interacting with potentially habitable spots on another planet, right? So if we had a drill that was going to Europa and digging down through the ice and trying to sample the the, the water, then that would course. require a certain level of cleaning. So at this point, spacecraft that go to Mars, for example, they wipe them all down with alcohol and try to keep a very clean environment, but there's still going to be material on them. So it's a... Uh, um, uh, and and of course the the Soviets back in the sixties and seventies just crashed completely dirty spacecraft into Mars all the all over the place. I, I, I doubt that it really will make a difference in the end. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's good it's good practice, you know, because you never can be sure. Yeah. And um, we certainly don't need the place having all sorts of bacteria on it that are going to confuse us later on. But uh, I'm really not expecting us to accidentally wipe out Martian life with uh, dirty probes. Um, I mean, other than that, as I say, uh, we are going to crash uh, a, a probe there. I'll keep in mind, there's like 10 kilograms of plutonium in that robot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would that might affect well, life. <laughs> well, someone was saying, yeah, if you send, a, you send a lander to Europa, just have your lander wait on the surface of Europa for a little while, and that will clean it because yeah. the environment around Jupiter is deadly. All right, I got one last question I want to hit you with, and then I think we'll let you go. The creator of TNT asks, are there any particles in interstellar space that can be used as rocket fuel? Oh, hydrogen. I mean, hydrogen's a great one for that. Methane's actually a decently common molecule in space, too. Uh, there's quite a few. Uh, I'm trying to remember if they actually found ethane, too, but the methane, certainly. Uh, oxygen's common enough, though, and usually not as free oxygen. Yeah, there's there's tons of it. It's just the problem is the speeds you're going at, chemical fuel is well useless as, other than to slow you down. So right. So if you can have some way to gather up the hydrogen, there's lots of it out there. You just have to figure out a way to pull it into, into your spaceship and use it as to run your fusion drive. Yeah. Two things that we don't know how to do yet. Like, you could do 1% of light speed with a fusion drive that was constantly feeling itself off the interstellar mediums because it gives you a lot more energy than 1% will detract from you. But you know, it's like the Bussard ramjet issue. You can't go too fast or you get slowed down more and you, you're all getting out of it. Right, right. Yeah, so you have to, you have to, your coasting phase, you have to make a fairly small profile. You can't be having this gigantic scoop that's out there harvesting material and because it's going to be acting also like a parachute at the same time. Yeah. Unless you're getting more energy out of it than, you know, like, uh, but you, you know, the speed you want to go at, even fusion's not going to help you coast yeah. long too well if you're tracking that much for the Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so before we do let you go, if people want to get involved in your vibrant SFIA community, um, how can they get involved? 
well, you can pop over to the actual YouTube channel, uh, which I think is probably going to get linked somewhere. Yep. But, uh, or you can come join us on Facebook at Science and Futurism with Isaac Oliver. And, uh, um, you know, again, it's I think we have pretty much a very shared community, a lot of overlap. So you'll see a lot of familiar faces there. So. Yeah. And, and I think, I mean, I think that's the great part, right? Which is that in the olden days, if you were doing 3D graphics or doing uh, illustrations or you wanted to get involved in, in scripts or editing or all those kinds of things, there is an army now, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, of people who are happy to help put you to work and give you practice and experience, things you oh, yeah. can put on your portfolio and be able to say, hey, I did this. And... And as the channel grows, I'm sure the need for help is going to increase as well. So I think it's a great it's a great place for people who want to get involved in this in this kind of thing. I mean, always use more help on. Yeah, that yeah, and and it so increases the production quality, and and I think it's going to really create this very virtuous cycle over time. So always a pleasure, Isaac. Um, and of course, I will put all the links. Uh, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Facial. All right, and thanks, everyone, for watching. Thanks to the mods for uh, keeping us safe. And uh, like I said, next week we've got uh, Paul Metzutter. All right, we'll see you all next week, everyone. Thanks.